it a few more seconds, and let's hope we're live. Getting a bit of a late start here. Apologize in advance if we also go two or three minutes over uh, the limit at the end. So Rosh Hashanah came and went. Yom Kippur and Sukkot are coming up. Now, last year I had the opportunity to talk about something relating to Rosh Hashanah. You can look it up if you don't remember it or you haven't heard it. I discussed the question of whether Yemenite chauffeurs are kosher. Uh, some people think, oh, you know, Big, nice, twisty shayfer, taken on mitzayim. It's a, it's an attraction, but grade there's actually uh, some serious halachic concerns there. So that's a Rosh Hashanah related thing. Yom Kippur was also covered last year. A Yom Kippur topic discussed uh, trusting doctors and medical opinions and how that relates, in fact, to vaccines, etc. So this year I thought to talk about something relating to sukkahs. Right, many people are already hurrying and rushing to pick up their dalad minim, and uh, it seems appropriate to talk about the topic already at this point. Now, specifically, the topic I want to discuss is: Do esregim really exist, or not? That's the question. Now, of course, if you're a heisu chassid, you don't begin to understand what the question is. Uh, the rabbi used an esreg and. Uh, Zichr, the Esrig, exists, and uh, we use the same Esregim. So, uh, what are we talking about? But if we zoom out a bit, and we take a look at the question and the topic of Esregim, and the Kashrus of Esregim, from the beginning of time until today, and we also take a wider look at the different varieties and types of Esregim, including how people, outsiders, not within our community, how they, what their perspective is on the different types of Esregim that we have today. So um, there's plenty to talk about. And uh, in fact, there's probably no way I'm ever going to be able to cover the topic in its, anywhere near its entirety. And this includes history and a lot of halachic shaklavataria and the history of halacha specifically and a lot of even technical, botanical knowledge. But in this, and this is probably just going to end up being uh, more of a hakdama, and we'll have to, you know, blina der mis Hashem, mis Hashem, have a hamshach in the short term we have next week. Um, I'd like to cover a bit of where the discussion about various types of esregim is holding nowadays. But first, let's let's get back to the question and define and explain the question a bit. I'm asking whether esregim exists. What does that What does that question mean? I mean. Seemingly, we see that they exist. No one's challenging that. Uh, unless we're getting philosophical about the nature of existence, but that's not what we're doing, right? So, but really, if you think about it, even outside the context of Sregim, Halacha, there's actually a fairly widespread question you might hear in different variations today about fruits in general. Certainly, in the last uh, century, the last bunch of decades, with scientific advance, advances, uh, but even before that, what, hundreds, thousands of years, uh, farmers, those who grow things, have always attempted whatever tricks they knew, whatever techniques they knew, uh, to use uh, methods and means to improve the, the crop that they were growing. 
in whichever, like I said, whichever means or, or methods or techniques that they were familiar with. Uh, at a very basic level, you have something called selective breeding, which is that you look for a particular tree, a particular fruit that has a certain trait that you want, and then you try to replant that and try to grow the rest of your crop from that, and then within those, you look for the next the next level, the next fruit that has an, an additional trait that you like, there are ways to slowly but surely breed for certain traits and fruits that you prefer. Beyond that, you have kalayim, you have hybrids, there are means by which you can hybridize fruits with each other. And then you reach, nowadays we have uh, genetic modification, GMOs, as you, you might have heard. Um, so all of this is to say that the fruits that you see in their supermarket today may in fact be quite different than their ancestors that our ancestors ate, whether it was 100 years ago, 500 years ago, or more. Uh, this is a very common, popular topic. You can pull up the first article uh, that comes up, and uh, you can see lists. So, for example, I um, uh, came across an article with a bunch of lists, um, watermelons. We have paintings of watermelons from hundreds of years ago. They look very different. It's very clear that the watermelon that's just large red inside, that's a chiddush. Watermelons weren't like that uh, 200 years ago. Bananas is a very classic example that uh, bananas 200 years ago were full of huge pits. It was very, not a very uh, appetizing meichel. Also, they're very, there are actually dozens of variants of bananas. And the banana that we have today is based on a particular type of banana that was uh, bred in whichever way to uh, get to the result that we have today, which is, of course, uh, very popular. Um, eggplants is another example. Carrots, in fact, you have a large red carrot. It's not necessarily what it looked like a few hundred years ago. Um, corn, corn is a big example. When uh, they reached, uh, when the Europeans reached America, the corn that grew here looked nothing like the corn we have today. A lot of, lot of work went into turning it into what we are familiar with today. Peaches are much, much different than they used to be. And there are many other examples of this. Not so before GMO. Once you have the concept of genetic modification, and if you look into it, then you're, uh, you find someone who's a rabid uh, you know, opponent of genetic modification, you'll hear them use terms like fake foods. Oh, it's modified, it's fake. It's not, uh, you're not eating real fruits. These aren't the fruits that uh, nature, etc., produce. This is uh, fake. So it's actually a pretty legitimate question to ask about any fruit that you're eating. Like, to what extent is this real? Or to what extent is this the fruit that uh, someone 500 years ago would have called this fruit? Is this apple the same apple, etc.? So the same logically would apply to the asterisk. And for the sake of this discussion, we're going to assume, like the Ben Chomish Lamikra, that Priyat, Hodder, asterisk, citron are all the same thing. We're not going to challenge that. But here, the question is not just a stomach question, it's also a halachic question. Meaning, if the Torah told us to take an esrig on the Yom Tov of Sukkot, so surely the Torah was referring to a specific fruit that has specific characteristics described in Chazal. And right now, within the from what we call the from world today, everyone seems to be agreeable that it's, we're talking about the same fruit. No one, uh, no one takes a different fruit on Sukkot. Uh, so we're all pretty much on board that the Torah means this fruit that we seem to think we're talking about, the question then would be, were there changes? The changes occur over time? And 
if there are changes, should we say that at some point the changes are significant enough that perhaps it isn't any longer that fruit that the Torah was talking about? Maybe it's a different fruit. Or maybe it's only half the fruit the Torah was talking about. It's the, that and something else. Now, first I just want to define in, in slightly technical terms what an esrig is. Because in case, in case that's useful information, because I'm sure for a lot of us we don't really think of esrig as a, a fruit the way we think of other fruits. We sort of think of it as a shal mitzvah. But of course an esrig is a fruit. It could be classified within the world of fruits. So as we know, an esrig is a citrus. Uh, let's just try to quickly define citrus. Obviously when we say citrus, that could include the tree and the leaves that we're talking about, the citrus fruit. And those of course include, the famous ones are oranges, lemons, grapefruits, pomelos, limes, those are the classic examples you think of when you think of a citrus. The um, way it's understood today is that all citrus originated in parts of Asia, and then at some point a few thousand years ago slowly made its way across the world, reached the Mediterranean, the Middle East, the part of the world that we're more familiar with, and then in the last a thousand years or so made its way, or more, made its way to Europe, and then ultimately to America, etc. But there's a, a path that all the citrus fruits took to get to where they are today. Uh, then, of course, you can define and describe what a citrus fruit is like, what they all have in common, right? So they all have that leathery uh, rind, uh, then there's the outermost layer, the part that you see that you can scrape and you can, it's called zest. Then you have an orange or other fruits, it's much thinner, but you have the white part right beneath. That's the, called the middle of the, of the peel. Um, that's called the pith. Um, and then you have the actual fruit, what we call the fruit inside, and those are the juice kernels, whatever you want to call them, pulp. And of course, another thing, so that's the description of the fruits. Uh, what they all have in common is that they have a certain smell, a nice smell, uh, due to whatever scientific reason. And of course, there's the juice. You can squeeze the, the kernels inside and get juice. The juice tends to, or the fruit tends to have a sharp, uh, relatively sharp flavor, etc., etc. That's citrus in general. So within that category, you have the esterig, which in English is called the citron. Um, so it's a, a large citrus. Uh, a thicker, clearly has a thicker rind than uh, the other fruits we're familiar with. The, most, the one it's most similar to, of course, most would say is the lemon, at least in general appearance. Um, uh, has a lot more, unlike the orange or the others, the, the white part under the rind is not very thin. Instead, it's quite large. In fact, most of the esteric is probably the white pith and the juice and the stuff in the middle is much, much, uh, much smaller portion of the esteric. So that's unique to the ester compared to all the other popular ones. Um, uh, of course, the rind is also a bit different, a bit thicker, harder, bumpier. Um, there's a unique smell to the esteric as well. Uh, the inside, if you do try to eat the fruit, and the esteric is produced separately, besides the fact that Jews buy, pay hundreds of dollars for the esteric that looks a certain way, uh, citrons are commercially uh, produced. You can buy them in certain uh, you know, markets. It's, it's, it is a fruit that people do eat as a fruit. Um, uh, you cut it open. You can cut out the inside and eat it. Or you can, uh, you can candy it. You can do different things with, uh, with an esteric. But uh, you look, look it up. You'll see. People are familiar with it. People do eat it. Um, 
not, not even going to talk about uh, China, where uh, the fruits are said to come from. But China has its own variants of the asterisk. It's definitely something that's grown. It was clearly grown for thousands of years, not just for people that wanted to have a asterisk on sukkahs. Um, right, so it's, it's on the, the, if you do eat the fruit, it's on the sharper side, although it could be somewhat sweet. Um, there's the seeds, of course, that are, of course, part of that you see in every citrus fruit, including uh, the asterisk. Uh, what's unique about the asterisk is the pitim, at least some asteragum keep the pitim, but you don't uh, usually see a pitim on other fruits. Um, but that is interesting that the asterisk does have that, and of course, we're makbid that it shouldn't, if it stays on, that it shouldn't break off. Uh, then you have the range of color from green to yellow. Uh, if it gets too, uh, too ripe, it can start turning orange. Um, right, so that's the description of the asterisk as a fruit, thinking of it as a fruit. Um, interestingly, when, you, when we discuss citrus fruits, um, according to science, there are only three original citrus fruits, and the rest are all kilayim zemizet. The original three are the mandarin orange, the pomelo, and the citron, and the asterisk. So the asterisk is one of the original three. And everything that came afterwards, so we're talking about orange, lemon, grapefruit, etc., lime, they're all kilayim with each other, you take two and you combine them, however you might do that, and, you know, and so on and so forth, and you can combine the toldus, toldus, same, zem, zem, you can keep on getting, uh, I guess, infinite variations in theory. So, after all, with all that in mind, so again, the question is, with the asterisk, is there room for concern that there have been changes that have gradually or abruptly turned it into a different fruit, essentially, that the Torah wasn't talking about anymore? Right? So like I said, it could be the small changes over time. Lamaisa we see, right, of all the asterisk that people do use, an Italian asterisk and an Artisraldic asterisk, they don't look exactly the same. There's a bit of a difference. That seems to be more of the natural changes you'd expect and differences you'd expect over time or due to different locations. But that's still, they're still pretty similar generally. You wouldn't say that they're like different minimum compared to each other necessarily. Um, so that's less of the problem. The bigger concern is in the last few hundred years about Kalayim or Murkov, the idea that there might be an asterisk that was mamish directly, Murkov somehow, with uh, another fruit. Obviously, when we're talking scientifically, it can only be with other citrus fruits. Uh, can, they can be hybridized with each other. And Be'ikr, the concern would be the lemon. And the question would be, is it possible that we have a Sreigim that acquired lemon characteristics, which... Uh, the most obvious lemon characteristic would be that there's more uh, pulp, more juice inside, uh, maybe the rind is thinner, that's what uh, you'd imagine uh, a lemony esteric. And uh, really in a shir last year we're talking about Tehloim and the shita of the Tzemach Tzedek regarding Tehloim, so in the midst of all that I mentioned that this, you saw the Tzemach Tzedek had a discussion about how nicker the, the Tehloim have to be, and Tzemach Tzedek had a more lenient opinion as to how nicker, like, meaning right now you can't see them. Is there something you could do to find them? Maybe, but if you can't see them right now, it could be there's still bottle. So I mentioned that there's an interesting sefer from, a few, from over 100 years ago, sefer Mishnah Sreb Elazar, Elazar Bar Kahan of Polotsk. He was connected to Chabad. At uh, that time, there was, the, was the, the peak of the controversy over the various types of Israelim, the Korfu Israelim, and this and that. So he has this huge, huge shuva he's going on and on into this type of logic. Lomer Zagin the Asrig is Murkav with a lemon. 
and it has all the simanim of the asterisk on the outside. But we have reason to assume that there's a larger amount of pulp and juice on the inside. So can we say that the lemon Sheba Esrig is bottled to the Esrig, that was the type of discussion he was having. Um, and his, part of his logic was, it doesn't even say the word Esrig, it says Priyat Hadar, and even if it did say Esrig, maybe it was, it's bottled to the Esrig, so it's not Mamayat, uh, this Esrig that has some lemon inside. Then it says, what do you mean? How could you say Bittal? It's not Nikami Bachotz, but you can cut it open and then it will be nicker from Bifnim. Ah, here's where the Tzemach Tzedek comes in. The Tzemach Tzedek has this idea that if it's not nicker immediately, then maybe it is bottle, even if there's something you can do to make it nicker later. That's the type of discussion that you, you might find in uh, these Svarim. And there's yeah, so a tremendous arichas in, uh, in this vein. And the same goes for uh, many Achreinim. Now really we should uh, differentiate between the, the categories of a Surah. We're talking about a Surah game that you didn't use. So there's one general category, you can call them the Mediterranean astragum, right? Of course, astragum can only grow in certain areas, they're very sensitive trees, they don't do well in cold areas. The whole, most of Europe, except Italy and Spain, is pretty north and pretty cold and pretty dark, and astragum uh, just doesn't work there, just like it wouldn't work in New York. Uh, but uh, the lower down you go, uh, tropical areas uh, are more uh, conducive to astragum. So of course, Europe always had to import it from the Mediterraneans. When we say the Mediterranean, uh, so what are we referring to? Referring to that includes Eretz Yisrael, which of course if you ask a Balabatash, not, not a Lubavitcher, when the Torah said Priyat Hadar, what did the Torah mean? Where did the Torah think you should get a Yisraelim from? A Pashtus, you assume the Torah meant you should uh, take the Yisraelim that grow in Eretz Yisrael, and one assumes that the Yisraelim that still grow in Eretz Yisrael are probably Behemshech, uh, either directly or indirectly from those original Yisraelim that have been growing there since uh, whenever. So that's our Mediterranean includes Eretz Yisrael, it includes Italy, specifically in Italy, the region of Calabria, which is all the way in the south, um, which is also nicknamed Yanover, which is somewhere else, but that's Cayudua, uh, the Yanover is Gen- Genoa, where they shipped the Sregum from to Europe, which is in the north, but the Sregum themselves grow in Calabria till today. You can look it up. Um, and to ask Sidim, we say that, no, the Torah, when the Torah said, what did the Torah mean? The Torah meant Calabria in Italy, and Meshul Rabbeinu sent a shliach to get the asterisk of the Torah meant from Calabria in Italy, Kayadua. Um, and the, the third major area in the Mediterranean category would be huh? Greece. It's, it's a Vart Miyuchas, the Alter Rebbe, yeah. No one else, no one else heard of that, no. Um, so you have Israel, Italy, and Greece, and the surrounding islands. Now, like I said, you can find slight differences between them. You can say, oh, this is the Italian asterisk, this is the Greek asterisk. And uh, it always was that way. You see, as for as long as there have been discussions about Israel, they differentiate between the different types. And even today, if you want to you know, write the name in scientifically, botanically, you want to write sub, sub, sub categories of Israel, you can say this is the, the Italian one, etc. But... All of these Yisraelim, which were the ones that we, speaking from uh, you know, an Ashkenazi-centric perspective, were the ones we were always familiar with, um, so they're all pretty much the same. They're all like what we described earlier, with the, with the peel and the fruit and the pits and all of that. So they're all pretty much the same. And that's where the whole Shiloh of Merkov originated, regarding these three places, Israel, Italy, 
and Greece, and everyone accused everyone else as a shagun of being Merkov, and uh, that's where uh, we're up to today. Uh, let's just take a look at the Alter Rebbe to see how the Alter Rebbe presents this concern. So if you look in Simon Tavrish Memchas, Dvarim Apsulim Ba'asrig, you go all the way to the end, Sif Lam and Aleph, so what's an, a hybridized Esrik? So what does that mean? So the Al-Tarebbe says we're talking about grafting. Grafting means there are two ways to, to plant an Esrik. You can either take the seeds of an Esrik and plant it and wait for a new plant to grow, or the quicker way, and this goes for many plants, you could just cut off a branch and stick it into uh, the root of another tree and allow it to keep growing in that way. Uh, it seems like it was more common to graft a sregum than to plant them. Um, the question is, what are you grafting it with? Are you grafting uh, directly on another asterisk root, or are you grafting it onto a different citrus tree? So the Altarebbe says, Asterik you took a branch from one tree, and you, uh, but the way the Altarebbe defines it is, you took a branch from another tree, and you put it in the Elon asterisk. For if some reason, interestingly, that's the only tzad the Altarebbe mentions. So you, you took a lemon, Branch and you put it in a lemon tree, and whatever grew looks like an asterisk. Pasuk shazayin asterisk klal elahubriah b'fneatzma. And the Alter lists the simanim that had been discussed in Achreinim that describe an asterisk that looks more like a lemon. And they look in the Marmakaimus there, Mitzayin to the Chuvas Maripadva Shutarama. This is where the discussion begins. Magen Avram Taz. Is it Tzemach Tzadik about it? Maybe we'll get to it in the next part. Maybe not. Um, Leo Matasov, who's a Dafka Mashkiach in the, the field of Israel. Dafka wrote a shtickle uh, a few years ago where he points out that the Alter Rebbe only mentions putting an asterisk branch in, uh, putting a lemon branch in an asterisk tree, and not vice versa. Even though, when you talk about uh, a hybridized asterisk, Pashtas, it's the other way around. You, you take the branch of the asterisk, the branch is the ikr when you uh, do this. Uh, you, take the, you would take the branch of the asterisk and put it in a lemon. He wants to, if I remember correctly, I didn't look it up again, he wants to be medayak, the maybe lay the the problem is not such a big problem if you uh, take, if the branch, the ikar branch is the asterisk. If he's, uh, well, a lot of the concerns following that up. A bit concerning that the mashkiach of the asregim is uh, writing this, uh, but uh, maybe he knows something that we don't know. Um, so, Maybe, hopefully, we can get back to the question of murk of the history and, and, and some of the reality today. Uh, I want to go off now for the rest of this discussion and talk about the other categories of Esrik. So there are two other categories of Esrik from within the countries that Yidin lived in. Again, like I said, China has its own story. We're not talking about that. So the two other major categories are Moroccan Esregim and Tayman Esregim from Yemen. Um, Speaking from a European Ashkenazic perspective, we did not know of these Israelim until the last 150 years or so, because there was no uh, commercial contact, apparently, uh, with uh, countries as far away as those. Um, they're both not considered Mediterranean. Yemen is in Arabia, and uh, Morocco is in North Africa. And there's seemingly less of a concern of Merkov. The whole Merkov controversy uh, wasn't really chal on these countries. You can always accuse them and suspect them of whatever, but they didn't have the same kind of commercial growing and sachrim and, and all of that culture around it the way Israel uh, and Greece and, and, and Italy did. The thing about them is that they are somewhat significantly different than our Israelim. Uh The Moroccan Esrik, Stam Moroccan Esrik, does not have pits inside. Very strange. 
Um, maybe we'll get to the technicalities as to how that's possible, what that means. But Stam and Moroccan asterisk, if you cut it open, you can look it up, I think in English, if you go to Google Images, put in Moroccan asterisk, you'll see a picture of one cut open. It's just uh, pulp, no pits. On the other hand, the Tayman asterisk is all pits and no juice. You cut it open, you can find it also. You'll see just pits, essentially no juice. It's just the white, thick uh, pith under the rind and pits, and then that's basically it. It happens to be that the pith itself is a lot more edible, and that was the peity. That's why, apparently why they were growing it. That part was considered edible. But, so for that reason, so on the one hand, you had European, you know, European Rabbanim, etc., that were getting so nervous from the whole Merkav controversy that, ah, here's a whole different, uh, these are untouched by controversy, by Machlekes, let's just switch to Morocco, Lamarzan. Then you have and some would say there's always, because of the business, because of the sachrim and schayra involved, so there's always a motivation to find problems with the other guys, Israel. So that's possibly part of the issue. Um, so you have those that came along and said, uh, Moroccan Israel don't have pits. Are you sure they're uh, the same men? Is he sure the Torah is even talking about uh, this? Maybe this is something else, either scientifically or at least alpitaira. And you could, the same could be said for uh, the, the Yemenite Israel to be a pre, it's supposed to be a fruit. Where's the fruit? Is it the same thing? So, to get a bit into the actual discussion, so I'm going to go through some material. This is not uh, my uh, material. This is something that someone wrote a year ago um, on the topic of Sregum Morocco. So obviously you have different people that have their pet Sregum, uh, the Sregum that they're a fan of, that they promote. Uh, so this is someone who's very pro-Moroccan Sregum. Um, right? Different people get hung up. Some people are very pro Yanova, some people are very anti Yanova, pro Yisrael, anti Yisrael, etc. Right? So, I mean, just, uh, just to summarize commercially, when we talk about Israel today, you essentially have Yanova for Chabad or for other Chesidah Shekraisen, hold the Chesam Sefer. The Chesam Sefer, a few hundred years ago, also wrote very stark that the tradition in Ashkenaz was to get from Yanova. So that's why you see other uh, types of people making their way into Karen Heights, looking for a good deal on a Yan of Asterik. Um, Greece is basically completely uh, out of business. Eretz Yisrael, so you have some old types, and then you have the Chazinish type, which is maybe something we'll get to. The Chazinish essentially moved to Eretz Yisrael, picked a certain Asterik that he decided was not no Chashash Merkov for whatever reason, for unclear reasons. Um, but all his Tamidim and Chsidim, the Toldis Toldisayim, decided that as long as we're eating an not eating, shaking an Esrik that uh, grew from the Esrik that he used, then we know we're safe, we're good, we're relying on the Chazanish, we don't have to worry about it. So that's a huge uh, portion of the market today. And then you have the Moroccan and the, the Taimanet. Those are basically the categories you have if you're shopping for an Esrik beyond uh, uh, just uh, your store incarnates. So, this is an article that was printed in Eitz Chaim, Kovitz Eitz Chaim, Baba 45, came out last year's Sukkot. Uh, it's actually a part two to this uh, this year, but we're going to focus on what he wrote last year. So, starts off by mentioning, of course, as the Asrik Hamark of Concern since Ramesha Al Sheikh and Eretz Yisrael and the Ramah regarding Italy, there's been this whole discussion. Plus, this bin was uh, some kind of virus or fungus, I didn't look it up, that started spreading among citrus uh, trees 
in the 1800s, and that caused a lot more grafting, and that's when farming and, and, and raising fruits got modernized, so there was a, a whole new wave of concern of grafting at the time to try to protect the, the trees and plants from uh, these problems. So essentially every asterisk has someone who uh, is its naysayer. So the question is, what about Morocco? He says Morocco, they, become, they weren't brought to Europe until quite recently. The first Jews in Europe to start using Moroccan Asragim, Dafka, were the Svardim. So you have the, the Svardim were expelled from Spain. A large portion of them ended up in Morocco and strongly influenced Yiddishkeit in Morocco. But then, as time went on, you had various uh, Spanish Jews that ended up in a number of new European cities. So you have Hamburg in Germany, you have Amsterdam in Holland, you have London in England. Those are all sort of new communities that started uh, uh, popping up in the 1600s with the Sephardim. The Sephardim, many of them were ex-Anusim, uh, uh, involved in international business, very wealthy communities, but they had more of a connection with uh, Morocco due to the Spanish connection. So, Lamasho, the first time you see uh, Ashkenazi Rabbanim talking about Moroccan Israelim, as we'll hopefully see, was when uh, they came in contact with Sephardim in London, Lamasho and London, the Sephardim in London were using uh, Moroccan Israelim. Now the whole culture of Israel in Morocco is very different. It describes how you know Ashkenazim, Metzalts, Metnervin, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks before Sukkot, you go to the Esrik Seicher and we're going to Nerves and checking and looking. And Morocco, the Ungarish year ended up there during World War II. He describes he was in Morocco. Erev Sukkot, someone walked into Shul with a big sack of Israel, put the sack down on the table. Everyone went over. Oh, it looks good. And that's the uh, extent of it, a whole different attitude towards mitzvahs or towards the fruit, whatever the case may be. Then in the 1800s, the mid-1800s, some people started importing them also to the Ashkenazi countries proper in uh, Europe and Eastern Europe. Uh, certainly after uh, World War II, it definitely took off as a big option. To any from community, you'll see uh, signs Moroccan Israel. Seemingly, there's nothing. Uh, what can you say against it? Uh, it has a nice Messiah, you have been using it. He says, in uh, I believe it was in 1967, as late as 1967, a fellow by the name of Rabshraga Shlomai, um, an immigrant to Israel, uh, was involved in uh, this tchum. He wrote a whole country, he was also involved in the asterisk business, so he wrote a whole country to explain why his particular Eretz type of asterisk is the only good one and all the rest are bad. And what about Morocco? So he was the first one apparently to point out that Morocco and Israel, they don't have seeds. They don't have seeds. I don't know what this is. It's not an asterisk or it's very murk of something. Who knows? Of course, he went after Yanova and, and Yemen and everything else as well. Right? Like I said, Yemen doesn't have juice. So he said he figured out the, uh, the ones that, uh, you know, that Abonim of Yushalayim were always using for the 200 years before, 150 years before that, whatever it was. He tracked down and found that uh, tree, that bush. So he set the ball rolling. Now there's this whole argument, accusation. That's the bottom that responded to him. So, what do you mean? You're trying to be mighty laws on uh, Moroccan Jews? I mean, the Gedele, Taira, they lived in Morocco for hundreds of years. As far as we can tell, this is what they were using. 
So now you have people that are more impressed by this argument, people that are uh, less impressed. I have some examples of Rabbanim in Europe, Shlem McClugger, his son wrote that Shlem McClugger already used the Moroccan Esrik. Arach Lener uh, in Germany wrote about a Esrikim, he said he used the Moroccan Esrik, he said it was very Mohud, he found the Moroccan Esrik was very Mohudr. Those who are against the uh, Moroccan Esrikim say, no Muslim Zagan, those Gedoylem must have gotten a different uh, Moroccan Esrik, they had, uh, had seeds, you think they would have cut it open, in the whole sugi of checking Esrikim, you think they would have cut it open, seen that there are no seeds and not said anything? They must have had the kosher ones, and somehow they've all been erased and replaced with uh, the non-kosher ones. And uh, this was an argument, he quotes different uh, people who wrote shivas and the mems, including uh, Menashe Klein, the Mishnah Halachas, that uh, were arguing that uh, there's something wrong with these uh, So the person who wrote this, his big uh, chiddush discovery is, is that he found a mocker, a rare mocker from 200 years ago, one of the earliest Ashkenazim to talk about the Moroccan Esrik and Dafki, he already mentioned that there are no seeds inside. So that meant that they were always this way, and then the Rabbanim that came after him and said they were good, they saw it and it didn't bother them, and they're makabal the Svaris, that it's not a, doesn't prove anything about the, the Esrik. Who, so what's the marker that he found? So he says it was a Rav in London, Rabbi Solomon Herschel. Uh, his father was Tzvi uh, Hirsch Berliner, big Rav, and he ended up as the Rav Ashkenazim in London, and he was interacting with the Svardim in London, and so he wrote this letter, and it was printed in a sefer called Pines Habayas, in the Tafrish Nuns or something. Someone still had this letter. This is a letter he wrote in Tafk of Ayin Vav, 1815, Cheshven 1815. Uh, so he writes, he starts up by, uh, interestingly, the first thing he says is, the from Suriname. Now Suriname, for those from South America, Suriname is at the north of South America. It's besmichas to the islands in the Caribbean. Now, there's a whole interesting history of Esregim being grown in America. And there's a Salon professor, I believe, by the name of Jonathan Sarna. And he's written recently in a number of places about the history of growing Esregim in America. Uh, California, here, there. One of the big, uh, it says that, I think uh, Columbus himself already brought the citron. And when he came to Jamaica, he brought the citron to Jamaica, and they started growing there. This was, like I said, back then it was a fruit that had commercial use regardless. And people started to want the Yidden who were in this area, wanted to use it for uh, sukkahs. Give me two or three more minutes, we'll try to wind down over here. Um, and uh, so it became a Gvarna Shaila at the time, and the early, the early 1800s, you start seeing this discussion in uh, Mangrabanim, are these. West Indian, Caribbean, Esregim, are they good or not? Now, the way nature, uh, basic fact of nature, that if you take the same fruit and you plant it in different locations on earth, automatically it's going to look different. It's never going to look exactly the same. Just the climate and the geographical differences. Trying to figure out the story with the West Indian Esregim and the ones from Barbaria. What's Barbaria? The Barbary Coast. The Barbary Coast refers to the area that we call today Morocco. He says, I haven't figured out the story. He says, I looked at the Suriname and the it, Italians, and they're pretty much the same, but the difference is how much juice they have. And then he makes this logical point that it's hard to be a mediac from the juice. On the one hand, juice, lemon. Uh, but on the other hand, he says, geographically, you grow the same thing. He says, the marshal, the figs. You grow the figs in our countries, he says, they're disgusting. 
if you grow them in the, the, the Middle East, they're delicious. So that can have a huge impact. So that, at this point, he wasn't bothered by it so much. Uh, Sorry in a quote that later on, a few decades later, someone printed after Abba Herschel passed away. A few years later, he said, I spoke to Abba Herschel in London, and he told me that West Indian Asuragam are no good. And Taka, at some point, uh, that was the last we heard of them. Um, but then he goes on and says, but the Asuragam from Barbaria, I caught them, hundreds of them, he says, and I never found Afgad in Echot. And I was shocked. Isn't this Hepach Teva Habriya? Didn't the Ebesher say that every fruit should have seeds? So there must be more kavim. And maybe that's why it's like a mule, just like a mule is an akar because it's a hybrid. So it could be they're hybridized and they're all uh, fruits that are all akar and they all don't have seeds for that reason. So we see that he's acknowledging this mitzvah and Taka bothered him. The bottom that came after him then said that they thought it was fine. Muslim Zaga and that they were also talking about the seedless ones and it didn't bother them. They didn't agree with his svara. What's the answer to his svara? So this fellow's name is Rabbi Mendel Goldstein. I think he's a satmira from Monroe. His argument is essentially that if you go to the actual trees in Morocco, you'll see that there's the, the, the long, narrow Moroccan Asragim, that's the Moroccan Giddel. All the Asragim that are like that don't have seeds. And because there are no seeds, that's why they're long and narrow. He says if you go to those trees, you'll see that they also have large, round ones. The large, round ones do have seeds. Every single tree has both. Attack unusual, interesting fluke in, in nature. What, what caused that? I don't know if we can explain exactly. But the fact that those very same trees have both, and for care, it could be those other ones look more like uh, a Suregan that we're familiar with that do have seeds. He says this proves and confirms that these are regular Suregan. For whatever reason, this particular one doesn't, uh, the, the particular types that were used for the mitzvah don't have, happen not to have seeds in them, but it comes from a regular min of esterik. The esterik, of course, has seeds just like any other fruit. And the male, in his opinion, we have this and this way, we've, we've proven the authenticity of Moroccan esterikim, and we've proven that there is, in fact, no problem with them, and we can rely on the Rabbanim that, that prefer the Moroccan esterik. That is the pro-Moroccan esterik argument. Mitzvah Hashem, like I said, next week, hopefully, will be Mamshech and other aspects of this very large